Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Recent frenzies of trading around small fry stocks such as GameStop have drawn attention to a practice that every generation of brokers and dabblers discovers, predatory trading. We look into how it works and why it's not going anywhere. And stories about plastic in the oceans have abounded in recent years, from vast garbage patches on the surface to tiny bits of it in the water. But the stuff that makes it to the darkest depths, researchers have learned, is actually being put to use. First up, though. South Africa has halted its rollout of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine just a week after the country received its first million doses. It seems the vaccine offers limited protection against a new variant of the coronavirus that's now dominant in the country. Salim Abdul Karim, co-chair of South Africa's Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19, spoke to a World Health Organization briefing yesterday. We don't want to end up with a situation where we vaccinated a million people or two million people with a vaccine that may not be effective in preventing hospitalization and severe disease. In total, more than 1.2 billion coronavirus vaccine doses have been allocated for the continent. But it's not clear when all those jabs will arrive. The longer any region remains unvaccinated, the greater the chance that more variants arise. Vaccines, though, can be tweaked, and a formulation of the Oxford vaccine targeted at the South African variant could be going into arms by autumn. What scientists cannot address is the long-run damage to Africa, both in human and in economic terms. So far, the continent seems to have been spared from the worst-case scenarios predicted early on in the pandemic. But the longer-term picture remains bleak. In many ways, the impact of the pandemic in Africa is worse than it appears on the surface or in the official numbers. Kinley Salmon is one of our Africa correspondents, based in Dakar. It is the case that having a young population has, to some extent, protected the continent from the virus. Fewer Africans are known to have died from it than Americans or Europeans. But the true scale of infection and death is really hard to gauge. A study in Sudan recently showed that perhaps only 2% of all the COVID deaths were recorded in the official tally. And the economic impact, too, is worse than it looks. Last year, the region's economy shrank for the first time in 25 years. Tourism has been badly hit, as have commodity exporters, things like oil in Nigeria. And taken together, GDP per capita fell below 2010 levels last year. So things are perhaps not quite as bad as in some other parts of the world, but certainly still very tough. And things may yet get tougher. How so? What are the particular challenges to Africa? Africa faces quite a number of challenges in the next few years as it tries to recover from the pandemic. But the biggest and first of them really is vaccines. Some African governments have 
perhaps failed to grasp the urgency of the situation. In Tanzania, for example, the populist president, John Magafuli, even casually cast doubt on whether vaccines work. Claiming that homespun precautions such as steam inhalation were better than vaccines, and even added that if the white man was able to come up with vaccinations, then vaccinations for AIDS, malaria and cancer would have already been found. So it's not so much a question then of supply, I mean, given that quite a few vaccines have been essentially booked at this stage? A number of vaccines have been booked, but the big question is when will they arrive? Because right now there aren't anywhere near the number of vaccines required for everyone in the world. And rich countries are, of course, at the front of the queue for those vaccines that have been produced. Africa is going to need perhaps 2.6 billion doses to vaccinate everyone. And those are not being made locally, and so they have to rely on suppliers elsewhere for the moment. So that means joining the queue. All this means that whereas rich countries aim to vaccinate most of their people by the middle of this year, the African CDC, a public health body in Africa, is aiming for 60% of Africans to be vaccinated by the end of next year. But even that may be too optimistic for the poorest countries. The Economist Intelligence Unit, our sister organization, estimates that in most African countries, most people will not be inoculated until mid-2023 or even early 2024. And there must be serious consequences of it being that long until the continent is on average vaccinated. Absolutely. Africa is likely, if it doesn't get those vaccinations in, to suffer further waves of the infection well after the disease may have ebbed in the rich world. And that, of course, will cause more death and more suffering. There's also a risk that having the virus transmitting between people frequently in Africa could allow new variants to evolve. And we've already got the South African variant. And these new variants could endanger people even in rich countries if they prove to be resistant to vaccines. And then finally, of course, not having vaccines could force African policymakers to continue with these very difficult economic lockdowns or curfews, even after many other countries around the world are set free of those kinds of restrictions. And if the public health concern lasts that long, then surely the economic concerns will last at least that long. That's right. I mean, many African countries are facing pretty severe crises at the moment, just getting enough finance to pay their bills. Africa has very limited fiscal space. On average, countries in sub-Saharan Africa are now spending more than 30 cents on every dollar they raise in tax revenue paying their debts. And that's up from about 20 cents on the dollar before the pandemic. On the debt side, too, over half of low-income sub-Saharan African countries are now classed as in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress, according to the IMF. And what about countries with bigger economies? Well, actually, you know, the two biggest economies in Africa, Nigeria and South Africa, are both in pretty deep trouble. Nigeria, for example, was described by the World Bank as being an unprecedented crisis recently. The bank is not normally quite so blunt. In Nigeria, there has been a legacy of poor economic management for a number of years, and the pandemic's really exacerbated that quite badly. And South Africa, too, is in in trouble. It had been in recession twice uh, in the last three years before the pandemic hit. And of course, now is struggling itself with a particularly heavy toll from the pandemic. So both countries, in fact, are facing a difficult road out of the crisis. And what about outside help in terms of financing? There has been quite a bit of outside help, although the crisis, of course, is very big. But in 2020, the IMF, for example, provided $16 billion in loans. Most of that came with relatively few strings attached. And this helped African countries you know, to respond to the pandemic, to avoid some of the liquidity crises that were looming. The World Bank also dispersed another $10 billion. But many countries got that funding, particularly from the IMF, under emergency allocations that came quickly and, and relatively easily. And those allocations for many countries will soon be exhausted. 
The rich world has also been trying to help when it comes to debt. They've provided liquidity to countries through something called the Debt Service Suspension Initiative that basically allows poor countries to put off debt repayments until July 2021. This is, of course, helpful, but the trouble is that those payments are just suspended and they have to be paid back with interest in about five years' time. So as the chief economist for Africa at the World Bank put it to us, it may just be kicking the can down the road. So how do you see this playing out then? How high could the human cost of all this be? Well, the stakes are are pretty high. I mean, the pandemic has already done a lot of damage to people's health in Africa. It's hitting their economic prospects and their wealth. And it's also affecting education, of course. Hundreds of millions of students in Africa have been affected by school closures. You know, this increases the risk of dropouts and reduces the prospects for Africa's largest ever generation. So overall, the costs here really are quite significant. There are, though, some reasons for optimism, and we may see vaccine rollouts accelerate. There's also hopes that commodity price rises could give Africa a real boost as the global economy recovers. You know, on balance, the evidence probably points to a pretty difficult road ahead with several more waves of the virus hitting already struggling health systems and perhaps a form of economic long COVID in Africa. So, you know, Africans have come through this showing remarkable resilience, um, but it may yet be that the toughest years are still to come. Kinley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets have been frothy lately. Yesterday, American indices closed at record highs. We are seeing stock market record after stock market record. The Dow and the S&P are now on their longest winning streaks since all the way back in August. All this on hopes that that huge stimulus package in the United States could actually be passed. The new records come even as the frenzied trading in stocks such as GameStop and AMC calms down, with America's Congress set to look next week into recent market volatility there are still plenty of unanswered, perhaps unanswerable questions about what the fallout will be for the future of retail investing. But what's behind these rallies is something that market makers' textbooks say shouldn't be possible. It is, and it's profitable. Predatory trading is a kind of strategy that exploits the needs of other investors to reduce their positions. John O'Sullivan is The Economist's capital markets editor. In a theoretically perfect market, Predatory trading shouldn't be possible, but in the real world, it is. What do you mean? How can it work in practice, but not theoretically? Okay, well, there's a couple of things that need to be present for predatory trading to work. The key thing is that markets are somewhat illiquid. A perfectly liquid market is one in which if you or I go and want to buy and sell a share, say, in that market, whatever size we want to do it in, a lot of shares, a few shares, we don't move the market price. Most markets aren't like that. They're illiquid, which means when someone's selling, it generally drives the market price down. And when someone's buying, it generally drives the market price up. 
So that needs to be present for predatory trading to work. And you need some prey. You need a distressed seller, someone who needs to get out of their position. Now, it could simply be that they've bought a stock, it's gone down in price, and their investors are saying, you're not a very good investor, we want our money back. So you have to liquidate to return money to investors. Or it could be for any number of reasons, but all that matters is that you are distressed in some way and that other traders know it. Okay, and then how do predators take advantage of those distressed sellers? Let me give you an example. Imagine there are just two traders in the market. One of them has reached its limits and is essentially forced to sell a stock. If the other knows this and the market is a liquid, it can sell alongside the distressed trader thus driving the price down further than it otherwise would have gone if it was just the distressed trader selling. And then once the distressed trader has got out of its position, has sold its stock, the other trader is free then to buy the stock at a much lower price and then drive the price back up. And the net effect of that is that the prey, the distressed trader, had to sell out at a lower price than he otherwise would, and the predator gets to drive the price down and buy the stock cheaply. So the trading that we've seen in the past couple of weeks from uh, from the Redditors on, on things like GameStop, that is an example of this predatory trading? It certainly had many of the characteristics of predatory trading. In this case, the prey were short sellers who had sold GameStop and some other stocks, expecting to profit from the price going down because they judged that these were bad businesses that were going to struggle. The thing about short selling is that generally you make your position well known in the market, either through regulatory disclosures or through the fact that if you are trying to highlight here's a bad business, a very effective way to get your shorts to work is to go on CNBC and say this stock is heading for a fall. The problem with with having your position known is that you are then vulnerable to being predated upon. That's certainly what happened in the example of GameStop. It was one of the most shorted stocks on Wall Street. It was trading in a pretty illiquid market. It wasn't a gigantic stock by any stretch of the imagination. And then you had essentially a swarm of traders around the Wall Street Bets Reddit site saying, let's take out the shorts and acting almost as if they were a single predator, driving the price up and forcing the short sellers to limit their losses and buy back the stock, which only serves to drive the price up further. It's the logic in the reverse, except short sellers are more vulnerable because their positions are generally known, but also because their losses are potentially unlimited. If you shorted a stock, the sky is the limit to where the price of that stock could go, whereas at least if you've bought a stock and you're selling it, the most you can lose is the price goes to zero. So there's a limit on your potential losses. So it's exploitative, but but is it within the rules? Is, is this something that should be regulated more? I think there's an important distinction to be made here between predatory trading and price manipulation. So price manipulation is when a bunch of people club together and say, we're going to try and move the market price against everyone else, say, drive the price down, buy up some stock and profit from that by buying cheaply at others' expenses. That's illegal. Predatory pricing is different because you're essentially using the weakness of others to drive the price. It's not really being driven by you. You're taking advantage of the need for someone else to unload a position. Now, there are circumstances in which 
predatory trading can be a system-wide risk. And there you tend to get intervention by by policymakers. But I don't think it's a pure regulatory issue. If you think about most market transactions, there's an element of predatory trading in it, whether it's a fire sale of a, a house because somebody needs to sell or whether it's someone walking on the lot of a secondhand car dealership and looking like they're desperate to buy. It's a part of all market transactions, not just in capital markets, is seeing how desperate your counterparty is and setting the price accordingly. And now that everybody's seen how this happened, do you think we'll see more of it? I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think this particular manifestation of it, this retail-driven predation, I think this is mostly about technology, so it's much easier to, to access markets in this way than it has been until now. But I think in very small stocks like GameStop, you're likely to have more episodes like this. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. There's another area of froth this week in commodities markets. The price of oil has broken $60 for the first time in more than a year. But in a strange twist, as oil prices go up, so too do those for the metals in the batteries that seek to replace fossil fuels. This week, Money Talks, our sister show on business and economics, digs deep to find out what's behind that discrepancy. Keep an ear out for Money Talks later today, wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Plastic really does get everywhere. Every environment where people go, but also it's increasingly clear even where they don't. The stuff near the surface of the ocean holds obvious dangers for sea life, choking fish or entangling birds. But plenty of it sinks. In 2018, researchers were horrified, if not surprised, to find a plastic bag in the Mariana Trench, the deepest of the ocean deeps. Now what they're finding is a surprise. Some of it can be a help to the creatures that live in those depths. There's a lot of plastic in the ocean, and it's making it to all kinds of environments. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. Two researchers in China, Dr. Song and Dr. Peng, had seen pictures of sponges and corals and anemones near junkyards at the bottom of the sea. And while that wasn't good, they were fascinated and questioning, is that life interacting with the plastic in some way? So they thought, let's go and check it out. And so how did they do that? Normally, under these circumstances, when you want to go and look at stuff that's down at 3,000 meters below the surface of the sea, you use a remote vehicle because that's safe. There's no one who's going to drown if the vehicle goes kaput. But the problem with remote vehicles and junkyards at the bottom of the ocean is they have a delayed reaction time for the pilot who's piloting it from the surface and connected to it via a very long cable. But the submarine can have a crew that's keeping an eye out for things like fishing nets and plastic ropes that can easily get entangled on this kind of equipment. And they took that submarine down and they collected 33 samples from the edge of plastic junkyards that were out off the coast of China. Most of this junk was bags, bottles, plastic wrappers, but there was plenty of fishing junk as well, ropes and traps and such. And so when they brought it up, what did they find? As they expected, they did find that these objects had life on them, but they were really rather astonished by the amount of life that was present. On the 33 pieces of junk, they found 1,200 individual organisms, 
And this represented almost 50 species of crustaceans, corals, echinoderms, flatworms, mollusks, and all kinds of fungi. That was really surprising because in the deep ocean environment, you don't tend to see this kind of diversity of life, except in very rare spaces, like on a whale's carcass. Turns out whale carcasses are like oases at the bottom of the ocean. Lots of life will grow. And these junkyards were generating the same kind of level of biodiversity that you would see there. They were even seeing egg capsules from things like cocoons from flatworms and other kinds of organisms that were reproducing at these sites. So they are really brimming with life, which is both fascinating and disturbing all at the same time. Well, quite. I mean, what's the hypothesis for why the plastic seems to be such a good substrate for life? The deep ocean is really covered with ooze, and that is not an easy habitat for animals to live on. For burrowers, it's okay, but for filter feeders and all the other animals that want to make a living by interacting with the water itself, you're very exposed if you set up shop in the middle of a giant plane of nothing. So that's why the researchers think that these plastic junkyards are proving so very attractive to so many animals. Is that a bit of good news then for the bottom of the sea, that this this plastic, though it ends up there, is at least giving more animals a chance? In the long run, probably not. So certainly there are animals that are making use of this plastic junk and making it their home. The drawback here is that to the best of our knowledge, none of these animals are actually digesting the plastic and turning it into something that isn't plastic anymore. All of this animal interaction with plastics is very likely just breaking the plastics down into smaller bits, which we call microplastics, which are then getting carried off by currents and floating into the digestive systems of yet more animals and doing goodness knows what to the biochemistry of other species and to the rest of the ecosystem. So it's really not good, but it's nice to know what's actually happening with all this plastic accumulation down at the bottom of the sea. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Charles Goddard, Editorial Director at Economist Impact. Marine pollution from plastics, chemicals, as well as many other contaminants, is a major cause of the decline in ocean health. Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation, aims to strengthen the evidence needed to understand and address ocean pollution, and thereby to help restore ocean health and promote sustainability. Follow the Back to Blue podcast for more insights.